Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello and welcome to LawPod. My name is Sarah Millman and I'm a postgraduate student at Queen's University Belfast pursuing a master's in law in human rights and criminal justice. Today I am joined by a very special guest, Professor Louise Malander. Louise is a professor of law at Queen's University Belfast. Her research interests relate to international human rights law, international criminal law, and law and politics and political transitions. She has a long-standing and internationally recognized expertise in amnesty laws, and in recent years, Louise has worked on projects related to the role of lawyers as transitional actors and socio-legal research methods related to transitional justice. Louise is the chair of the Committee on the Administration of Justice and has been involved in collaborative research projects around dealing with the past in Northern Ireland, which will be the subject of our conversation today. Thank you for joining us, Louise. Thank you, Sarah. I'm delighted to be here. So to give us a bit of context about what your work has actually involved, can you tell us why you believe it's necessary to create legislation around dealing with the past? Hmm. I think it's an important issue in many societies, but I guess I'll answer that question with reference to Northern Ireland because I think that's what you're most interested in today. And here, I think it's necessary to create legislation for legal, moral and political reasons. From a legal perspective, the UK has a number of international obligations that mean it has to investigate violations of the right to life and the freedom from torture, inhuman and degrading treatment. Um, Obviously, we've had a number of processes over the years that have sought to do that. But for a variety of reasons, there are either problems with how those processes operated or delays that have meant that there are still large numbers of victims that have not had their legal rights um, fulfilled. In addition to those legal obligations, I think the fact that there's been decades since um, people people were bereaved or injured during the troubles, and yet they have not yet had adequate investigations, speaks to the moral reason why we need to do this. We are a relatively small jurisdiction. We have a comparatively small number of victims related to our troubles, and we're an affluent society with functioning rule of law systems. There is no reason why we shouldn't do our best to address the needs of those who are most harmed by our past. And then I think politically, it's necessary to enact legislation to deal with the past because the past is and has been continually a divisive issue within our political life in Northern Ireland. It's one of the features uh, that is behind our current deep political dysfunction. And I think it's going to be difficult for us to move forward to the type of society we want to be without fully addressing this. Definitely. Do you mind giving us a bit of context about what current legislation looks like for reckoning with the past? Do we have any provisions that deal with this right now? Or Mm -hmm. are we kind of creating as we go? Well, Northern Ireland is a slightly different situation to other transitional societies because we are one region of the United Kingdom and the United Kingdom has always been throughout the Troubles and since, of course, a functioning democratic society. So that has meant that the normal processes within society to address harms to some degree apply to um, Troubles-related deaths. So, for example, there are, there's the coronial inquest system 
So that applies to um, contemporary debts, but also to debts related to the past. Um, but we also have a number of uh, bespoke mechanisms that have been set up to deal with things. So there was legislation to establish an independent commission for the location of victims' remains that looked at the small number of disappearances that had took place during the travels and sought to find the remains of those who disappeared. Um, we've had a small number of public inquiries that have looked at either the events on a specific day in the um, in the case of Bloody Sunday or into specific deaths during the travels. And we also have a police ombudsman's office, which is set up as part of the institutional reform that took place in our peace process, uh, but which looks at not just contemporary complaints of wrongdoing by the police, but also historical complaints. Do you mind telling us how that is affected by the Stormont House Agreement and how things are changing now? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it became apparent uh, in 2012 and 2013 that the existing mechanisms to deal with the past weren't fully delivering either for victims or for Northern Irish society. And we saw that in the political crisis we had during those th- that period, particularly in 2014 in relation to the On the Runs letters, but also in disputes around issues such as flags and parading that spoke to perhaps a lack of reconciliation within our society. And so the parties, the Northern Ireland's main political parties came together in 2013 and tried to have a look at how to address the legacy of the troubles, among with a broad set of other issues. And uh, in twenty thirteen they didn't that process was mediated by Hass O'Sullivan and it came up with quite a set of detailed proposals, but the parties didn't sign up to it. So they went back to it again the next year and that gave us the Stormont House Agreement. And that process um it's actually the first time in our transition where there's an effort to come up with solid proposals, commitments from the political parties to establish a comprehensive approach to deal with our past. And how did it go? How did that kind of effort actually interact with public needs? How, what was the response to that effort? Hmm. Well, I guess there's always often been a large public response when there have been these conversations in Northern Ireland. I mean, this was significant because it was the first time the Northern Irish political parties tried to agree this. But outside of that political process, there had been a number of previous consultations, particularly um, the consultative group in the past process that operated from 2007 to 2009. And I think what we saw in that process, what we saw in the House of Sullivan process, etc., was always that there was considerable public willingness to engage in those debates, to submit responses to consultations, etc. And since 2014, I don't think that has diminished. I mean, there's been a... When, when the Stormont House Agreement was initially reached, there was discussion from some of the policymakers and civil servants involved that they were hoping to move to implementation quite quickly. And that has happened with other aspects of the agreement, but it's now, at the time of recording, 2018, and um, we still haven't had... Um, legislation entering into effect that would give effect to those provisions. But what we have had recently is a consultation process. And again, we can see a strong public interest in these issues. And as far as I understand, there have been over 10,000 submissions to that process. And this is where you became involved as well, if I'm not mistaken. The model bill team that you've been a part of has actually been addressing a lot of those legacy issues and looking to join public consultation with legal issues in a more accessible way. What has your model bill team actually been accomplishing and what was your response to that Northern Ireland office consultation? Mm -hmm. That's been a 
a long-standing program of work that I've been involved in with Professor Karen McAvoy here at Queen's, initially from from the time of the consultative group in the past, in 2007-2009. That led into a research project that we worked on together that was funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. And that was operated until 2012 and 2014. So that gave us an opportunity to engage in the House of Sullivan Talks and the Storm and Tass Agreement process as well. So at that point, we were trying to feed into the negotiations um, models that could perhaps be agreed between the parties to try try and inform the debate or at least find ways of overcoming sticky issues or obstacles within the negotiations. And we were also talked more broadly than the political parties we engaged with, different civil society groups, victims associations, etc. Partly to see what people's views were on dealing with the past, but also to try and um, build capacity where it was needed. I mean, obviously, there's many, many people in Northern Irish society who have a great deal of expertise and have been working on these issues for a long time. So it's not a jurisdiction that's short of expertise on these issues, but I think there are there are some of the technical legal points that I felt that we could um, add value to those conversations on. So that took us to the end of 2014. Then the Stormont House Agreement was agreed. And as I mentioned, it looked at that point like we were going to be going quite quickly towards there being draft legislation to implement that. So we took the decision with uh, colleagues in the Committee on the Administration of Justice, uh, Dr. Anna Bryson, who's in the law school here at Queen's and is an oral history expert, and Jeremy Hill, who is a former government lawyer who at that time was a visiting scholar at my previous institution. And we decided collectively that we would try and make a constructive intervention into that legislative drafting process by trying to develop our own model bill to demonstrate how the Stormont House Agreement commitments could be implemented in a human rights compliant manner. What specific areas was the model bill team examining with reference to legacy? The Stormont House Agreement uh, called for the creation of four new institutions to deal with the past in Northern Ireland. There would be a historical investigations unit, an independent commission on information retrieval, an oral history archive, and an implementation and reconciliation group. So our model bill team took the decision early on that although we did not feel the Stormont House Agreement was perfect, it was definitely the result of political negotiations and compromises, and so it didn't look at how we would wish it to look, we thought it was what was obviously politically viable. And so our proposals under the model bill sought to work within the framework of the Stormont House Agreement and develop concrete proposals around each of those four institutions. Um, and so to do that, we kind of divided up our expertise within the group. So Anna, the oral history expert, obviously took the oral history archive. And myself, as someone with experience of working on amnesty laws, uh, focused on working on the Independent, Independent Commission on Information Retrieval. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. It's so fascinating to me because often we see policy diverge from legal issues with politicians not being willing to consult actively on the legality of different policies throughout the creation process. I wonder if you could reflect a bit on how you feel legal scholars and academics like yourself could take a more proactive role in legal and legislation drafting in the future. Yeah, it's been it's been this has been an interesting process for me as a legal scholar trying to do that sort of direct intervention in the policy making cycle, and I think it's one of the nice things about being uh, an academic here in Northern Ireland 
that are civil servants and politicians are perhaps more approachable than my colleagues in other parts of the UK tell me is their experience there. Um, I think academics generally have a responsibility to try and con use our research to contribute to um, evidence-led policymaking, to try and ensure that policies are formed uh, on the basis of what will work. What, what is legally, um, um, what, what complies with international legal standards or domestic legal provisions, what will deliver for the people who need to benefit from those policies. And I think academics also have a role to play in trying to inform public debate within our society. And so that's what we were trying to do through that project. So while we were drafting our proposals, for the model bill, we met regularly with the NIO team that were actually doing the drafting for for the UK government, and you know, we discussed where how where we were going or what bits we developed. Um, but we also continued our previous methodology, so we met regularly with other groups in Northern Irish society as we were developing our proposals to hear their views on our thinking as it evolved, and we did that in a series of private meetings, but also public meetings. So when we had our initial draft of legislation, for example, we held a big public event here at Queen's and said, these are our proposals, what are your views on them? And tried to use that to feed into the final version that was published in um, late 2015. In taking on an evidence-led approach to this type of research, was it at all a challenge for you to incorporate the lived experiences of survivors of violence into that evidence? Or was it kind of an easy blend between the two ideologies? I guess the first thing to bear in mind there is uh, survivors of violence aren't a homogenous group. They have a wide variety of very different experiences and different forms of harms they experience during the troubles and different things they feel they need from processes to deal with the past. And so I don't think we as a group ever felt that we could uh, perhaps do justice to all that multiplicity of views. But we did feel it was important to try and listen as far as we could do to, dif to different opinions um, from, from all different entities within our society. And I think part of the reason for that is we say we're trying to do things in a manner that's evidence-led. Northern Ireland is a unique post-conflict situation, as all post-conflict situations are. There are things that are very specific to our circumstances, and so there's a lot that can be learned from looking at international experiences and international standards to inf to make suggestions about what can or should be done. But they all need to be adapted to the local circumstances. And there are things which there just aren't clear international standards on, but nonetheless are important to people. And so we were trying to think about how that would work. And there were a number of other groups over the years doing all this. And I'm quite mindful here of a set of gender principles on dealing the past that were developed because they were conscious that um, the perspectives of women's experiences during the Troubles have been largely ignored in the Stormont House Agreement and resulting documents. So they were trying to say that there's more that could be done here. And the, the, a lot of how those things will be incorporated, I think, might depend on how these institutions actually operate when they're established. This is going to be a long, you know, ongoing process. And so there's going to be a lot once they're actually created about what principles they operate under, what sort of codes of practice, how do they reach out to people, what sort of stories do they want to hear. And so there's a lot that's going to evolve over time as well. So I think trying to ensure that 
um, those working on dealing with the past and the mechanisms that are created are responsive to a multiplicity of views. I think it's an ongoing and important piece of work. Definitely. As those continue to evolve, what role do you feel legal scholars and academics like yourself, as well as the model bill team, should take in that evolution and in the creation of future legislation? Well, I'm hopeful that in the best case scenario in in early 2019, there will be um, the results of the consultation will be published, and that will lead to amendments to the draft bill as we currently know it, and that will then go before Parliament. The job of academics at that point might be to try and scrutinise the draft, the the bill as presented to Parliament perhaps to try and work with people around what sort of amendments might need to be made to the draft, that draft bill before it's passed. If it is passed and becomes law, the work then turns to monitoring its implementation and looking at how the processes are created, how appointments operate, um, and then, as I mentioned, what sort of codes of practice they operate under. And so that, that's the work that will go on then tracking their op- With hope for how this consultation will develop into the future, do you feel that legal scholars like yourself do have an obligation to be a part of that process and informing the public and public discussions around this type of legislation? I think academics have, as I said already, an obligation to use our expertise to benefit society. Um, legal scholars are a diverse bunch. We've all got very different areas of expertise. So perhaps not everybody doing legal scholarship in Northern Ireland needs to engage in these debates. But for those of us who have expertise that's relevant to them, yes, I think we do have a responsibility to to contribute and play a role in trying to ensure a good outcome in those processes. I mean, I I think like many of my colleagues here, I my research is both focused on Northern Ireland and internationally. And so I see my responsibility as a legal scholar or a transitional justice or human rights expert to use my expertise um, to help the real world where I can do, whether it's here in Northern Ireland or elsewhere. I guess my last question for you on this then is, you mentioned being hopeful about the future for this legislation and about how the Sturman House Agreement will actually be realized in 2019 and into the future. I just wonder if you feel that the law is ever going to be an adequate enough tool for navigating issues of legacy, or if there will always be limitations in reflecting the lived experiences of survivors and victims of conflicts like the Troubles. I think law can do a lot to address the legacy of the past. Um, if I think of the role of international law within our transition, um, it's been a driver for efforts to address legacy. Judgments from the European Court of Human Rights, for example, prompted the creation of different mechanisms at various points. And I think the fact, the recognition that the UK has obligations under the European Convention is one of the reasons why we're seeing efforts to develop new legislation on dealing with the past. I think it's also useful because it can place limits on what can and can't be done. Most notably, um, international law places limits on what types of amnesty or statutes of limitation that can be used, something that's increasingly in public discussion at the moment since 2017. Um, I think it's also useful because in our society and others, efforts for dealing with the past are often politicised. 
They are seen sometimes as zero-sum games between different antagonistic parties. Law doesn't operate that way. Law creates rules that are meant to apply equally to everybody or create principles. And though, So I think in that sense, law can be perhaps be useful to depoliticize some of the aspects of dealing with the past. And I think also it provides a framework for um, ensuring accountability. And where people fail to honour their commitments under legal frameworks, it provides an avenue for challenging that, for providing for redress. So I think there's a lot of ways in which law plays a vital role in addressing the legacy of the past. But of course, it's a somewhat blunt instrument. (laughs) The way that they don't necessarily always pick up a lot of the nuances in people's experiences, as we were talking about earlier. So the extent to which these processes treat the people who engage with them in a sense of dignity that make them feel like they're satisfied at the end of that process much of that will come from how it's operate how they operate not just the law and the statute books great well thank you so much for having this conversation with us louise it's been a pleasure to have you on law pod thanks very much for having me it's been fun (laughs) you've been listening to law pod an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff at queen's university belfast This episode was produced by myself, Sarah Millman, Daniel Spence, Jeffrey So, Amy Caldwell, Richard Somerville, and Rachel Killian. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle, and LawPod is funded by Queen's Law School and the Queen's Annual Fund. Thanks to Louise Malander for joining us today. You can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at QUVLawPod, and for more information, you can also visit our website, lawpod.org. And please have a look at the show notes for more information about the topics we covered today. You can find this on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Sarah Millman, and this is LawPod. <laughs>